Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love and your mercy and your watch care. We ask that you will be with us as we study today, and we especially want to live up, lift up the, the families and people struggling down in Texas after that terrible storm. Um, you, you know what uh, is going on in all those circumstances, and we pray that, that in the aftermath of this, people will ask questions uh, about where we are in Earth's history, and, and, uh, and, and your Spirit will be there to lead them back to, to the truth that you want people to come to a loving relationship with you so that we can actually be out of a world where things like this happen. pray in your holy name. Amen. Uh, I'm excited to be able to say that after many years of anticipation, the new book, The God-Shaped Heart, will be actually available on the market on Tuesday, September 5. Now, I know some of you in the room have gotten a copy already, and if you want to help us now, I want to be very clear as I say this, I would never, and I'm not, asking for any artificially inflated ratings. <laughs> but if you really feel strongly about this, on Tuesday you could go give us a, a, a nice rating on Amazon, and that will really help. We, um, Baker Books is, who's the publisher, very high on this book, and they have putting a major media push and campaign to promote this across a wide landscape of Christian publications. And you will see... Um, uh, advertisements in various magazines like Christianity Today and other um, Christian journals uh, across the, the country over the next three months. So we're really hopeful this is going to really impact people's hearts and they will be able to come to see God who is our designer, creator, God of love and get rid of this kind of fear-inducing penal God construct. All right, so we're doing lesson uh, number 12 in the quarterly of the Gospel in Galatians and the title this week is Living by the Spirit. And as you hear the terms, because I mean, we, you can't be a Christian without her, hearing the language living by the Spirit. So you've heard that throughout your entire Christian experience. But what does it actually mean? What does it mean practically, applicably? Well, the Spirit, as far as I was able to understand and study, ha- is described in Scripture with three primary attributes. What are the three prime attributes of the Holy Spirit as described by, by Scripture? Functions at... Attributes, character qualities, methodologies, if you will. John is uh, John fourteen sixteen, and I will ask the Father, and He will send you another Counselor to be with you forever. The Spirit of Counsel. truth, the Spirit of truth. So, one attribute of the Spirit is truth, truthfulness. The Spirit of truth, and God is love. love. Another attribute is love, and there's a third attribute. Three prime attributes of the Spirit: truth. Love and Second Corinthians three seventeen. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom. Truth, love, freedom. These are the prime attributes of the Holy Spirit. If these are the th- and, and I and I gave you the Bible verses for each of those, so, so I'm not just making these up. These are coming from Scripture. If these three prime attributes of the Holy Spirit, what would it mean then to live by the Spirit? If the attributes of the Spirit are truth, love, and freedom, if someone is filled with the Spirit, would they manifest those attributes? This is why in Old Testament, Zechariah, not by power nor by might, but by the Spirit, says the Lord. Why will God and the Spirit not use might and power to achieve their goals? That's not what they're like. Because they can't. Okay, that's not what they're like. 
That's not their character. It's not, it's not their attributes. It would be, it'd be, well, that's out of character for them. You hear that? Well, that's not, it's somebody, if you know somebody who is really gracious and kind and humble, and, and then you hear somebody describe them doing something, well, that's not, that's out of character. I actually had a patient come to see me who was married for, oh, I don't know, seven, eight, nine years to a man who was very, very humble, uh, uh, whole life is well-disciplined, uh, college graduate, run business, cr- Christian man, and suddenly, uh, and he was a vice president of a major organization, and suddenly he's getting fired for sending scandalous emails to female subordinates. And the wife was coming to see me brokenhearted because her husband would do such a horrible thing. And, and as she, I said, describe your husband for me. And she did. I said, this is out of character. And I didn't see the husband. I said, this doesn't sound to me consistent with the man who's lived this way. I said, I, I recommend you go home and ask your husband to get a brain scan. And they did. And he had a major tumor in his prefrontal cortex. Yes. Okay. This is out of character. Something is wrong. This is not normal. So you're right, uh, for God to, to work in might and power to achieve his goals, number one would be out of character, wouldn't be the God that we serve. So if we're teaching a God who does achieve his goals in that way, it's not the God who Jesus revealed, and thus Jesus will say in the end of time, they'll come to me and say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name, we cast out demons in your name, we perform miracles in your name. Notice Jesus is saying they're going to do this in the name of Christ, not in the name of Buddha, not in the name of Hare Krishna, but in the name of Christ. But he will say to them, Get ye hence, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Why? Because they're presenting a person with the verbal name Jesus Christ, but with attributes or character qualities that are not his. So I love the way you said that. First problem, it's not consistent with his character. But there's another problem. Not only is it not consistent with his character, can God actually achieve his goals by using might and power? Can you get love and trust from sentient beings by using might and power on them. Do it or else. Love me or I'll punish, I'll coerce, I'll threat. You can't get love. You can't achieve his goal. So not only is it out of character, which I love that as first, but you can't achieve what he's trying to achieve. But the truth about God, who is love, and this is how the Spirit works, given, demonstrated, communicated, leaving people free to reject that love. Think about your own life experience. If you've ever been in a position where you believe someone was out to harm you, whether it was physically, whether it was harm your reputation, get you fired from a job, uh, uh, get you embarrassed at school by the teacher, get you disciplined, somebody was out to harm you in some way, what happened in your heart toward that person? I believe this person's out to harm me. Do you, are you drawn toward them? Well, what happens if we teach theologies where, where God is out to harm us? Does it draw us toward him? What happens if you believe someone is not only out to harm you, but they're required, required by law, and they even have the moral right to, to hurt you? Are you drawn to that? What happens if we teach God as the moral arbiter of right and wrong, has the moral right to hurt you, to punish you, to kill you? Does that draw you to him? What happens if you believe there's a person who actually has the more? You've actually offended somebody. They have the right to take you to court. They have the right to see, but they forgive you instead and, and, and set you free and don't hold and don't seek to punish you. What, what happens then? And you know they could have, but they didn't. What happens then? 
depends on whether you're remorseful. It depends on whether you've repented. If you, if you haven't repented, it keeps burning coals on your head. But, but the point is, it doesn't, dry, it doesn't put the wedge in. in, in doesn't, it, it, it really has a positive influence. Whether you respond to it or not, it's a much more positive draw to you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This whole concept of the act of God, you know, down in Houston, you know, an act of God, you know, is it going to draw people to him? Well, that's what, that's what it's an opportunity to have conversation. What is God's role in that? And if we get to the fruits of the Spirit, if we can get to it, we're going to ask the question about these types of things. I think that's an important question for us to, to, to discuss. Let me, let me kind of go along with this, but let's come back to that. What is it that has actually separated us from God? Lies. Thank you. Thank you very much. Us. Lies that we believed. You notice, is, is it God's anger that keeps us separated? Is it God's wrath on sin that keeps us separated? Or is it the lies we believe and our own fear, fearfulness, selfishness within our own hearts? So what would be necessary to reconcile us to God? If, if, if what's separating us, keeping us apart from him, is our own distorted beliefs about him, that we fear him, and we have selfishness in our heart, that we're scared and frightened and we're acting... If this is the barrier, what would be necessary to, to cause reconciliation that we're united with God again? Truth. We need to be you. Truth. Truth, which destroys lies, wins us distrust, and a new nature that's the metaphor of being reborn or the 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 acted out metaphor of baptism dying to the old and being born anew and and raised in the newness life we get a new heart and right spirit and we get that through the spirit who's take all that christ has achieved and reproduces it in us so it's no longer i that live but christ lives in me okay so what's necessary to be reconciled is to remove the lies that causes distress and to remove the selfishness in our heart because that's the barrier right now, if you were to act that out metaphorically, if you were to create a little, a little drama, a little play, a little skit, maybe, how might you act that out? To reveal, and the play is designed to reveal God who is the source of pure truth and pure, unadulterated love, who is trying to reach us, but we're separated by God, from God by lies and our own fear and selfishness. Might you, I don't know, draw up a stage in which there was a bright light hidden behind a veil, and that veil at one point in time is ripped wide open, and now there's an open way back into the light? What happened when Christ died? Was the veil ripped open? Was the way now made plain? A new and living way through the veil? Through what? What, is the, what did Christ's death open for us? I can tell you, many people teach that there's some barrier up there and it opened the way through the punishment. It opened the way through the legal accountability. It opened the way through God's wrath and anger. I'm going to suggest to you what it's designed to open is your own heart. It was designed to open your heart, which has been barricaded with distortions about him, with fear. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were... And who were they running from? They're running from God, but who is the only source of help for them? Who is on their side? God is on their side, but they're running from God because this is what sin does. It causes a a barrier internal to ourselves that we isolate. We live in shame. We live in guilt. No one could love me if they knew what I've done. I'm so corrupt and so horrible. And so these lies pile on lies. and, And what did God need to do? He needed to pierce that. The other thing that it revealed, at 
the time that the, the curtain was ripped, the ark was gone. God was gone out of their hearts. And Christ's death revealed the emptiness of the people who had lost Christ in their hearts, or God in their hearts. When the, the, tip, when the curtain was ripped open, you could see it was empty. And Christ's death revealed how empty Satan's lies were, that the, the, the alternative was. It, that was a dead end. So from the, from the remedy, Hebrews 10, 19 and 20. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since Jesus died to bring us the truth about God and to eradicate selfishness from humanity, we no longer need to be afraid, but can confidently enter the most holy place, God's very presence, because Christ's death revealed the truth about God and ripped open the veil of lies told by Satan that blinded our minds and destroyed the infection of selfishness that separated us from him. When you see Christ on the cross, is your heart pierced? Is your heart open to experience unity and reunification with our Savior? From the book Christ Object Lessons, page 419, it says, In the great and measureless gift of the Holy Spirit are contained all of heaven's resources. It is not because of any restriction on the part of God that the riches of his grace do not flow earthward to men. If all were willing to receive, all would become filled with his spirit. Do you believe that to be true? That, that any person who is genuinely willing to open their heart, the spirit will come and fill their hearts. Yes. So the restriction, it's not on God. It, it is the privilege of every soul to be a living channel through which God can communicate to the world the treasures of his grace, the unsearchable riches of Christ. There is nothing that Christ desires so much as agents who will represent to the world his spirit and character. There is nothing that the world needs so much as a manifestation through humanity of the Savior's love. All heaven is waiting for channels through which can be poured the holy oil to be a joy and blessing to human hearts. The indwelling of the spirit will be shown What will show whether you're indwelled by the Spirit? According to this author, and I think it's exactly right, Jesus said, they will know you're my disciples by your your love. By your love. This author says, the indwelling of the Spirit will be shown by the outflowing of heavenly love. The divine fullness will flow through the consecrated human agent to be given forth to others. The Son of Righteousness has healing in his wings. So from every true disciple is to be diffused an influence for life, courage, helpfulness, and true healing. The religion of Christ means more than the forgiveness of sins. It means taking away our sins. This is what we're talking about in here all the time, that Christ died not to take away the punishment for sin, but take away the sinful corruption from the hearts of people to restore us to righteousness and filling the vacuum with the graces of the Holy Spirit. It means divine illumination, rejoicing in God. It means a heart emptied of self and blessed with the abiding presence of Christ. When Christ reigns in the soul, there is purity, freedom from sin. We ought to unpack that. The glory, the fullness of the completeness of the gospel plan is fulfilled in the life. The acceptance of the Savior brings a glow of perfect peace, perfect love, perfect assurance. The beauty and the fragrance of the character of Christ revealed in the life testifies that God has indeed sent his Son to the world as as its Savior. Christ does not bid his followers strive to shine. He says, let your light shine. If you receive the grace of Christ, the light is in you. 
Remove the obstructions, and the Lord's glory will be revealed. The light will shine forth to penetrate and dispel the darkness. You cannot help shining within the range of your influence. This is good stuff. So what is, what is the barrier, whether you like what this author wrote or not, what do you think the barrier is to the Holy Spirit indwelling people? Is there any barrier from God's side of the equation? Sunday's lesson, first paragraph says, walking is a metaphor drawn from the Old Testament that refers to the way a person should behave. Paul, himself a Jew, makes use of this metaphor often in his letters to describe the type of conduct that should characterize the Christian life. His use of the metaphor is also likely connected to the first name that was associated with the early church. Before the followers of Jesus were called Christian, they were simply known, known as followers of the way. Yes, and have you ever known people that need to get out of the way? Sorry about that. (laughs) This suggests that at the very early date, Christianity was not merely a set of theological beliefs that centered on Jesus, but was also a way of life to be walked. So when you think about walking, and I think it's a great metaphor, I think we have learned a lot from it, do you think of some arduous, difficult, technical task that you must practice years to achieve or an ability that develops naturally? When you think of walking, how do we learn to walk physically? Is effort put in? But think about the effort of a child learning to walk. Does a child have to be coaxed in order to learn to walk? Or do a lot of parents, in fact, try to, you know, diminish some of the walking they're trying to do? (laughs) Put up barricades and barriers and little little fences to, to hem them in so they won't walk places they shouldn't. Does learning to walk spiritually require that we put in effort? When does the most spiritual growth happen? When you are being prodded, coaxed, pushed, or when you desire to grow spiritually? Desire. Just like walking physically, huh? Does walking physically require continued walking throughout your life to keep on walking? And you know one of the things that accelerates disability is to get one of those motorized wheelchairs around your house. You get one of those babies, and you stop using, and you get more atrophy, and you get more weakness. In accordance with the design law. The law of exertion. If you want something to get stronger, you must exercise it. Because if you don't use it, you lose it. So what about spiritually? Must you keep walking spiritually, exercising those abilities in order to, to, to stay spiritually healthy? Can we learn to walk physically by merely watching other people walk? Can we learn to walk spiritually by merely watching other mature spiritual people walk on their journey? Hmm. What interferes with learning to walk physically? Diseases, lack of effort, injuries. What about spiritually? Bad habits. It's been my entire week. Walking habits, bad walking habits. Bad habits, okay. What about, I like that. What what about spiritually? What interferes with learning to walk spiritually? Sickness of heart, spiritual sickness of heart, selfishness, failure to engage with God, in other words, laziness, not trying, Uh, mental, emotional, physical, or spiritual injuries or wounds that we don't heal from, bad habits that we engage in. I like that. When a child, yes, find somewhere, yes. A lot of what I do my professional career is watch people walk. Mm-hmm. 
To walk, you need three things. You need stability, you need balance, and you need power or motor. That's also true in the spiritual realm. We need power from the Spirit. We need balance. If we're not balanced, we will go off in all different directions. Like it. And fall in, in multiple different directions. We also need stability. You know, that will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is steadfast. Or stayed. Or stayed. On. On. Right. Yeah. On you, on Christ, on, his, on, on God, his character, his design. I get people all the time, I'm going to expand on what you just said, that ask me in their decision making, how do I know? I don't know how to make a good decision. How do I know which is the better choice? How do I know? They struggle. They, they, they worry. They, they've never developed by practice, Hebrews 5.14, the ability to discern healthy from unhealthy, mature from immature, right from wrong. How do I know? What is it that gives great confidence in your decision-making? When you know design laws. I'm telling you, when you can understand design laws and how they actually work, there's such confidence in your decision-making because life becomes so predictable. It doesn't surprise you. You can predict future events that haven't happened yet when you understand design law. He also got me thinking that as a clinician, you also need a great understanding of what is normal gave. Same thing spiritually. Yep. You need, you and need Christ the, is the example of normality. What is normal? What, that's what normal life was designed to, to operate as. Amazing how many children are brought to our office for evaluation who are normal, who the perception of the parents is that they're walking abnormally. Yeah. Mm, and if the parents have their influence, what will they do to the normal walk of the child? Might they cause it to become abnormal? Yes. Lots of interesting parallels there. Yes. So when a child learns to walk, when a child's learning to walk, does the child ever stumble and fall? When people learn to walk spiritually, do they ever stumble and fall? When a child stumbles and falls, as they're learning to walk physically, do the people in their life mock them, criticize them, ostracize them, punish them, or immediately seek to comfort heal if there's an injury that's occurred during the fall, and set them back on their feet. Do we treat people who spiritually fall that way? Does God treat us that way? Oh, yes, God does. But I'm talking as his hands and feet on earth, his representatives, as the Father sent me, so send I you. In the church, do we treat people who stumble and fall spiritually in the same way we treat a child who stumbles and falls physically? Hmm. Treat a child who says, I'm not getting up again, I'm not going to try this, I can't do it, and just curls up and says, you know, you wouldn't continue to coddle that child as they grew up, because that would be uh, not good parenting and not good support for that child. So spiritually, what about the people who spiritually would rather just curl up and say, I'm just going to stay where I am? My next question, should a child after falling... Say, should their attitude be, I'll never learn to walk. I can't do it right. All the other children walk. All the other kids walk. I keep falling. I keep stumbling. Some people even running, but I can barely stand. I'm just not good enough. I think I'll quit. Should that be the attitude of a child who's learning to walk and stumbling and falling? And so what do you do to the child who has an attitude like this and wants to give up? What do you do? 
You encourage, you educate, you say, hey, it's okay, everybody stumbles. Well, I remember when I, were your, I, I was your age, I stumbled a lot. I, see the scar on my knee? That happened because I, when I was learning to fall, see the scar on my forehead? I hit the, I hit the counter and psh, or whatever, you tell your life experience. You tell about your stumbling, but how people encouraged you and picked you up. Here, I'll hold your hand while you try this time. Encourage you to take baby steps. I just stay home. And again, I'm thinking more spiritually than the actual physical. Yes. So who would rather stay where they are because it's actually they've been so nestled that there's not the motivation. So the way you handle that with people is you. There's several different angles, but it's always the same. Is you leave them. You leave them. If they truly the attitude you're saying, encouragement doesn't work, their, their agenda is to be infantilized so that through their infantilization, being an infant, through being an infant, through being helpless, they can then control those around them to do for them what they ought to be doing for themselves. If that's what you're describing, okay? If that, then you leave them and you don't rescue them and you don't provide for them and you let hunger and thirst and pain motivate them to take action. Amen. So I will give you a true. I was consulted to see a lady who was in renal failure on, a, on the uh, dialysis unit for severe depression. And uh, uh, she had real disease. She had real renal failure. She had real sickness. She was on dialysis. And, and, uh, but she had regressed to the point of just being so pitiful she couldn't even do the most basic things in life. She was so depressed. And so the first thing that I did after I assessed what was going on, and I'm going to give you an example of why I did this in just a second, is I, re- I moved her from the renal unit to the psychiatric unit, which is a locked ward, so I could do a familyectomy. I could excise, I could excise her family away from her. Exactly. And within 20 minutes of being on the psych unit, now she's on a regular old hospital bed and, and so forth and so on, um, the nurse's call light goes on. And I was still on the unit, so I walked in with the nurse. And this, it's very sad, pitiful woman said, Would you put my glasses on my face? <laughs> Now, you have to understand, if you look at the structure of the room, she had to reach over her glasses to hit the call light. Her glasses were here. She had to reach over the glasses to hit the call light. Okay, this is the kind of person you're describing. And so you know what we did? No. If you want your glasses, you put them on your face. By the end of the week, she was up uh, setting the table, uh, cleaning up afterwards, helping out, doing all kinds of stuff through the thing. What happened was she had a real disease, that required some assistance, but her family felt so empathic and so bad for her, they began providing assistance she didn't need. So this goes to the next question, and we'll segue right right in, back to our metaphor. Should the adult parent, when their child falls and actually gets hurt and is crying, think, oh, that tears my heart so much. I couldn't tolerate to see my child fall and get hurt again. Therefore, I'll carry them and never set them down again. Should that be the attitude of the adult parent? Because I didn't want, would never want them to stumble and, and hurt themselves. I, I love them too much to let them get hurt. And so they carry them from that point forward, and they never put them down again. What have they just done? They've crippled their child. This is what happened to this woman. They had so much compassion for mama and grandma and she was struggling and she was really sick and she was. 
And so one of the things we have to do with people is we have to use our good judgment and assess what assistance is legitimate and what, and what can the person legitimately still do for themselves. And you only provide the help that's actually needed with the goal to restore the person to the greatest level of autonomy and independence possible within their current levels of abilities. That's the goal. Not to do for people what they're capable of doing for themselves. That, And spiritually is the same thing. If somebody falls spiritually, should their family pick them up and say, I'm never going to let them make those decisions again. I'm going to make choices for them so they won't make the bad choices anymore. I'm going to send them to a school that will teach them a list of rules and it will be really protected and they will have required worships they'll have to go to and they'll protect them on the Sabbath so they won't have any bad influence with them. I'm going to send them to a place where they never have to make any mature decisions for themselves. I'm going to indoctrinate them. Here's what to think and what to do. Just follow your checklist and you'll be safe in life. And we infantilize people. Make them spiritually immature prevent them from growing up. Last paragraph. Paul's comments about walking in the Spirit are not contrary to obedience to the law. He is not proposing that Christians should live in a way that violates the law. Again, Paul is not opposed to the law or to obedience to the law. What he is opposed to is the legalistic way in which the law was being misused. The genuine obedience that God desires never can be achieved by outward compulsion, but only by an inward motivation produced by the Spirit. Is there any conflict in the legitimate walking in the Spirit and obeying God's true, genuine laws? Is there any conflict there? None. There's no conflict there. It's always harmony. But can law-keeping sometimes be an obstacle to walking in the Spirit. How? How can that happen? What type? Has hand someone who's answered that question? So what type of law and law-keeping is opposed to the Spirit? This is from the same book, Christ Object Lessons, page 97. This is the man who attempts to keep the commandments of God from a sense of obligation merely because he is required to do so, will never enter into the joy of obedience. He does not obey. When the requirements of God are accounted a burden because they cut across human inclinations, we may know that the life is not a Christian life. True obedience is the outworking of a principle within. It springs from the love of righteousness, the love of the law of God. The essence of all righteousness is loyalty to our Redeemer. Thus, this will lead us to do right, because it is right, and right doing is pleasing to God. So, do you hear in this little paragraph two types of laws being contrasted here? What is the natural result in your heart when you're required by an external authority to obey a law under threat of punishment that you have not agreed is the right law? You just know they have power, and if you don't, you'll get punished, but you don't really think it's reasonable. What happens in your heart? Rebellion. (laughs) Okay. You may go along to avoid the punishment, but is there any joy? Is there any peace in your obedience? You may do the speed limit. Exactly. What happens, though, in your heart when you obey, not only because you understand and agree that it makes sense, but it's actually the way you prefer to do it in the first place, and that's what you'd like to do even if there wasn't a law. 
Then what happens in your heart? See, genuine law-keeping isn't about an argument over the accuracy of one's definition of the commandments. Oh, let's argue. Should we have images of Christ in our churches or thou shalt not make any graven images so we shouldn't have images in our churches? Let's argue over that. That's the commandment. Thou shalt make any graven images. And that's a big debate in some Christian circles. There are many others. I won't go into all the others, but you know them that we back and forth. But, but assuming that whatever law one is attempting to keep is, in fact, the correct way of understanding it, what happens in the heart if you keep it, but do so under the imposed law model? If I don't keep it, God will put a demerit in my record book in heaven. And if I don't get that legally accounted for, he'll be required by justice to punish me at some time in the internal judgment future. And that's why I keep it, so he won't punish me. What happens in my heart if that's my motive? That's my understanding. Even if it's the right one. Fear. Rebellion. There's no peace. There's no joy. There's no real obedience. You're not obeying. This is how Satan has infected Christianity. By getting Christians to believe that God's law functions like the laws we make. And millions have grown up with increasingly fearful of God and trying to keep his law, trying to stay out of legal trouble with God, or legal loophole law-keeping. I know I can't stay out of trouble, so I'll claim the legal, uh, uh, the legal perfection of Christ to my account, but, but if I don't claim that, then God will still have to kill me. This has resulted in their characters being hardened, leading to fractures in the church. There's 34,000 different Christian groups all broken up because they all have their different interpretations of what the law means, and we're going to do it the right way. And you're not doing it the right way, and so we're going to have to look down on you. And so even within the Adventist church, we all know that a county without an Adventist church in this, in this world is called a dark. dark county. I mean, the only light comes from the Adventist church. I mean, come on. <laughs> Nobody else has the, the, right, the right definitions. And it leads to using of methods of force and coercion. So we're going to want to get a hold of government. And we're going to pass laws to make sure that people morally live the way we know God has prescribed that we must live. And we'll punish people who don't. And this is going on right now. Why do you think we wanted a certain election? So we could put certain justices on the Supreme Court. So we can get certain laws passed so that people in this country will finally start living the Christian way. Or else. Or else. And it's throughout the history, Catholics have burned Protestants at the stake. And Protestants have burned Catholics at the stake. Uh, The Irish, you know, the, the, the Protestant Catholic wars. Why are they warring against each other? We have different sets of definitions, and we know that when you break rules, we must punish. We have to punish these rule breakers. We need to come back to realize that we all actually are just suffering from the same sickness of heart, the same infection of fear and self-centeredness, and we need the same remedy provided by Jesus Christ. And true law-keeping stems from a principle put in the heart of love for God, love your Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. All law hangs on these principles. And if you don't have that heart change, it doesn't really matter what rules you keep. It doesn't. Anybody want to argue that point? If your heart has not been changed, it doesn't matter what rules you what rules you keep. Yes. At what at what point will God turn us over or turn people over to a reprobate mind? Okay. So t- tell me your understanding of what those words mean. What does it mean to be turned over to a reprobate mind? Need to think what you want to think. Okay. So in Thessalonians, it describes those who are lost in the end. The uh, they did not love the truth. Those who perish in the end are these are those who did not love the truth and thus be saved or healed. So what was the causative action here that God wasn't 
providing truth. He's not the source of truth. The Holy Spirit isn't working to bring truth. Or is it that they didn't love truth? So how does a mind get reprobate? How does a heart get hardened? In the Old Testament, it says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened in several places. It says God hardened Pharaoh's heart in several places. And it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart in several places. All three are described in Scripture. What's going on there? When you understand how the mechanism that hardens a heart, here's the mechanism that hardens a heart. Here's how a heart actually becomes hardened. The Holy Spirit, being the spirit of truth, brings truth to sentient beings' minds and hearts in ways we can comprehend it. And there can even be a conviction that you know this is true. But even though you know it's true, and you've all been in this position in your life somewhere, you are still left free to accept and apply it or reject it and go a different way. That's your choice to make, not the Spirit's choice. If you reject, if you accept the truth and apply it, your heart is healed and transformed and you become more tender and more sensitive in the movement of the spirit. But if you reject the truth and go a different way, your heart becomes hardened. Your conscience becomes seared. Pharaoh had more truth brought to him than any other ancient ruler. Ten different plagues were brought against the Egyptian gods, revealing that every one of them were false gods. He was convicted. There was no power in these gods. This is a whole system of human fabrication, that the God of of Israel is the true creator God. He was convicted over and over again. And every time when the plague was stayed, he went back to his old way and rejected the truth and preferred his own selfishness instead. So if Pharaoh had never been brought to the position of decision-making, if truth had never been brought to him, he would have never made a choice to reject it, and thus his heart would not have become his heart. So God hardened his heart by being the source of truth that was revealed. But Pharaoh is the action agent who hardens his heart by rejecting truth. So a reprobate mind happens when, over time, we reject truth again and again and again until one day, and I can't tell you when that line is for each person, but there comes a time, if we persist down that path, we actually destroy the faculties that are sensitive to the movements of spirit of the spirit of truth and love. Truth has no more impact on us. Love has no more impact on us. Our consciences are seared. Our minds are beyond being reached anymore. That's a reprobate mind. Does that help? Yes, thank you. So what is meant by love being fulfillment of the law? What is meant? Fulfillment of the law. What does it fulfill? Love makes the law full. Full of what? What do we understand the law of love to be? Simply emotion. I feel deeply warm, warm feelings inside my chest. That's, that's, is that love? I will tell you some of the greatest acts of love have been over the most horrible, negative emotions ever experienced in human experience. Jesus at Gethsemane, the greatest act of universal love was the cross. And what emotions was, was Jesus experiencing in Gethsemane? Was he experiencing warm fuzzies? No. Love is not simply positive emotions. In fact, it's often the greatest love is when we take the action that is self-sacrificial to benefit others in God's plan that goes against our inclinations, that's hurtful to us. It doesn't feel good to our, our, our fallen nature. Christ did not have a fallen nature like we do, but he was tempted in every way just like we are, so he had that agonizing temptation. So what is meant by love? What is actual salvation? It's restoring us to God's original design that he created mankind in Eden. Healing, salvation, means to heal, to restore, to put his living law back into the living vessels it was designed to be in. The last sentence of that paragraph reads, The genuine obedience that God desires never can be achieved by outward compulsion, but only by inward motivation produced by the Spirit. This is well said. It's absolutely true. And then think of the implications. If you understand that to be true, there are implications 
toward the doctrines we teach. If God cannot get what he wants by outward compulsion, law-keeping can't happen by threats, then can we have teachings that ultimately have God sitting up as the arbiter of justice who goes over the record of, of law-breaking and punishes people for breaking laws? That whole system collapses if this is true. However, when we come to design law, what doesn't collapse is that those who persist in deviating the laws upon which life are built will not avoid the pain and suffering that comes from being out of harmony with God's design unless they allow God to heal and restore them. If they persist in rebellion against him, they suffer terribly as a result of unremedied sin in their lives, not as an affliction from God. Monday's lesson title for the day is the Christian conflict. What is the conflict? With whom do we have the greatest battle to fight? Yes. And so the lesson points us to Galatians 5.17 and it says, for the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want when you hear that. So they're in conflict for each other. So you do not do what you want. Which way do you hear it? Therefore, you don't live the righteous life you want, or therefore you don't sin like you want. Which way do you hear it? What does your natural heart want? Your natural sinful heart wants to gratify itself. It wants to be selfish. I think the text is saying when you live by the Spirit, you won't do what your natural heart wants. That's what, this, is a, this is a promise of victory. Some read it, though, the other way. Yep, you accept Jesus, but your carnal nature is so strong, you won't do all those good things you want. You'll just keep sinning. That's, in my view, a complete gross misinterpretation of what's being said here. Romans chapter 7, starting at 14. It says, We know that the law is consistent, reliable, and reasonable, but I am inconsistent, unreliable, and unreasonable because the infection of distrust, fear, and selfishness has warped my mind and damaged my thinking. I am frustrated with what I do, for having been restored to trust, I want to do what is in harmony with God and his methods and principles, but I find that even though I I trust God, my old habits, conditioned responses, preconceived ideas, and other remnants of the devastation caused by distrust and selfishness are not yet fully removed. And if I find an old habit causing me to behave in ways that I now find detestable, I affirm that the law is a very helpful tool revealing residual damage in need of healing. What is happening is this. I have come to trust God and I desire to do his will, but old habits and conditioned responses, which present almost reflexively in certain situations, have not yet been totally eliminated and thus cause me to do things I don't want to do. I know that my mind was completely infected with distrust, fear, and selfishness, which totally perverted all my desires and faculties, so that even when distrust has been eradicated and trust has been restored, the damage caused by years of distrustful and selfish behavior has not been fully healed. So I find at times I have the desire to do what is right, but do not have the ability to carry out the desire. For the old habits and conditioned responses are not the good I want to do. No, they are the remnants of my selfish and converted mind. So if I find myself doing what I no longer desire to do, it is not myself that acts, but the vestiges of old habits and conditioned responses that have not yet been removed, and through God's grace they will soon be removed. So I find this reality at work. When I want to do good, my old selfish habits and residual feelings of fear are right there with me. In my mind, I rejoice in God's methods and principles, but I recognize that I remain damaged from years of being infected with distrust and practicing Satan's methods, so that even though the infection of distrust has been removed, the old habits of fear and self-promotion tempt me from within. What a damaged and corrupt man I am. Who will deliver and heal me from the brain and body so diseased and deformed? Praise be to God, for he has provided the healing solution through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
So then I find in my mind that I am now renewed with trust in God and love of his methods, but my brain and body remain damaged by years of self-indulgent behavior. What do you think? Can you all connect and relate to that? And the longer you stay in the healing process with Christ, the more and more those residual defects are taken away. Because of this tug of war between our new heart's desires that want to live in harmony with God and the old habits that we developed before we actually came to a, a, life, a new life with Christ, God has actually given us some directions that if we follow these directions, it significantly improves our ability to follow what our new spiritual heart desires are and minimizes the impact or the power of the selfish temptations. Any thoughts on what those directions might look like? Ten words. <laughs> First and foremost, a trust relation with God in which the Spirit lives in us. That's the most important first thing. Because we can't do it in our strength. So it's a trust relation with God and the Holy Spirit. But then, in that trust relationship, studying God's Word along with prayerful meditation. This activates one of God's laws called the law of worship. By beholding, we become changed. As we internalize and assimilate new truths, they become new patterns of thinking, new building blocks for new understandings, new ways of viewing things, which ultimately become incorporated into a new worldview, which activates different neural circuits, and over time, the brain structure will change itself. And we have good science on this, that when you meditate and worship on a God of love, love circuits, which are in the higher cortex of the brain, grow stronger, and our fear circuits become less active so we change over time if we worship but if we don't if we instead worship one angry gods punishing gods then these healthy changes don't don't happen what about so one of the things he's encouraged us to do is spend time with him study his word meditate on his creation his statutes his his perspectives his way of doing business that we incorporate and think oh how can i apply that to my life another choosing to help others altruism Active When you do this, when you actually give of yourself to help others, you activate your brain's love circuits, which calm your fear circuits. And there's another law, where I, we, law of worship and last one. Now, the law of exertion. If you want something to get stronger, you must exercise it. If you want stronger musical skills, you've got to practice your instrument. If you want stronger math skills, you've got to work problems. If you want stronger love abilities, you've got to love people. You can't become a great musician by listening to this stereo 10 hours a day. You can't become a great lover of people by listening to sermons on love 10 hours a day. At some point, you've got to help people. You've got to practice. So he's given us the... And by the way, that's one of the reasons for tithes and offerings. Tithes and offerings are a prescription to help you practice giving. To overcome your fear to hoard. And then healthful lifestyle choices, such as regular sleep, avoidance of intoxicating substances, regular exercise, all of which improve higher cortical function, keep the limbic system calmer, makes your temptations less strong, makes your ability to resist temptation. I can tell you, I notice substantially when I'm sleep deprived. I'm, I get irritable. I'm much more irritable. I'm much more likely to, to snap when I'm sleep deprived. And that's neurobiological. When you're sleep-deprived, prefrontal cortex, first part of the brain that's impaired. And when the prefrontal cortex becomes impaired, then little things that are, you would normally just process easily and don't, don't find irrit irritating become irritate, irritable. You get irritable moods that you normally wouldn't get. 
This is why the old wives' tale, don't go to bed angry with your spouse. I, I tell people, it depends on really how significant the issue. If it's a very minor issue, then resolve it. But if it's going to require a conversation late at night, tell your spouse, hey, I love you too much to give you only half of my brain. <laughs> you need my whole brain. Let's, let's talk about this tomorrow after we're rested. You'll find it goes much smoother. I promise it really will. For, and then forgiving those who do us wrong. When you forgive others, you're actually releasing yourself. You see, sin is insidious. When someone sins against you, they've done wrong and they have searing of conscience, hardening of heart, guilt and stuff all inside them. But when they sin against you, they plant a seed in your heart that you're going to be tempted now to be bitter, to be resentful, to be angry, to want to retaliate, to want to seek vengeance against them. You will be tempted when someone does you wrong with all these emotions. And if you let that take root in your heart, then you will begin to ruminate on ways to make them pay, how to get them back. You'll begin plotting and planning on ways to, to punish them and hurt them for what they've done, which means over time that root, that, that, that selfishness is going to take and, and, and grow up into a plan in your heart, and you will in time become like the person who did you wrong. And so the way that God has given us to prevent that when someone does it, you forgive them. Forgiving them doesn't mean what they did was right. Get your mind around this. How many of you forgive people for doing the right thing? We never forgive the right. If you forgive somebody, by definition, it means what they done was wrong. We don't forgive rights. But when you genuinely forgive from the heart, you root the, the little seed that was planted in out. You take out your desire for vengeance and bitterness and, and hostility against them. It doesn't mean you trust them. They still may remain untrustworthy. But you see it through the lens that Christ saw those who crucified him on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They think they're killing me. They're destroying their souls. When people do you wrong and you recognize how sin works, they're hardening their heart. They're searing their conscience. They're, they're, they're ruining themselves. I feel sad for them. It's a lot easier to remove when it's a seed instead of a full-blown forest. Tuesday's lesson, I want to get to some of the stuff in Tuesday's lesson, which is talking about the works of the flesh and access to read Galatians 5, 19 through 21. And it says the acts of sin, the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, the envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. What do you hear being described here? What is the core that drives every one of these things? Selfishness. Selfishness. Great. So the question now is, which is a work of the carnal or sinful nature, how is idolatry and witchcraft a manifestation of selfishness of the carnal nature? We are one in control. We are in control. Okay, I like where you're going with this. So what does fear and self-centeredness lead you to want to do to protect self, Right. Isn't that what it leads you to do? To be in control. So pagan practices, what makes something pagan? It's always some works, something done to the deity in order to influence the deity to do something that you want. We'll offer our, our best cow so we'll get rain. We'll offer our best lamb so the flood will stop. We're going to do something to influence this deity to do what we want. Put our coin in the machine and get out what we're looking for. Okay? Usually with some type of a bribe or other payment that the deity needs. Self does not die in such practices. Hearts are not renewed. Misdeeds, though, may be accounted for and paid for, but there's no internal change. Look for this in Christianity. Other versions of Christianity which focus on accounting for bad deeds, presenting offerings to God in order to wage or propitiate his wrath. Those are pagan uh, versions of Christianity. It's paganism uh, uh, masquerading as Christianity. 
What about practices in Christianity where certain incantations must be recited in order to bring the power of the supernatural to bear to get what we want, whether it be healing or a job or a promotion? There is this belief that if we say the right words or or engage in the right ritual or have the right incantation, God will then be required to dispense supernatural energy to affect outcomes in the way we want. This is witchcraft. Masquerading as Christianity. It's superstitious thinking. And many of the rituals in Christianity have broken down into this type of ritualistic and superstitious thinking. Rituals designed by God to teach us a higher way of thinking, to get us to think about what's the reality behind the ritual, but instead it becomes self-driven so that we can control the outcome by doing this If I just get the right Bible promise and read it in the King James English, then and I and I present that before God, I can hold Him to it. God, you promise that uh, if we claim Your promises, and I'm 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 reading the promise, it's my coin in the in the heavenly vending machine, and now I want to get out the thing You promised. Why will those who live like this, according to Paul, who do all these horrible things, not inherit the kingdom of God? He said they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why not? One thing they would be happy there. Okay, so, so I like where you're going with that. What is the kingdom of God? Is the kingdom of God primarily about acreage, territories, gold, silver, buildings, possessions? Is that what the kingdom of God is primarily about? The kingdom of God is within you, Christ said. Oh, so what is the kingdom of God then? A state of mind, but the kingdom of God is the kingdom of love. love. It's the kingdom of love, truth, and freedom. The elements we started with earlier. Love, truth, freedom. These are the elements of God's kingdom. Now, if this is the elements of God's kingdom, why won't those who were described in the paragraph up here as of giving into the flesh be in such a kingdom? What keeps them out? Does God refuse to let them in? I will not have anything to do with you people. You offend me. I can't, I can't even stand to be around you people. In fact, you say it's themselves. You said they wouldn't be happy there. What would they prefer? To be in God's presence or to die? And we have scripture. Revelation describes them. They beg for the mountains to fall on them rather than to be in the presence of Jesus. Why? Because God is seeking to hurt them? Or their condition is such that they hate righteousness. They hate purity. They hate holiness. They hate honesty. They hate other-centeredness. They can't stand it, and they would rather die. Well, we have some human examples of this in human history, some despots, and Judas is a good example. How did Judas die? Hitler is another example. The fruits of the Spirit... Wednesday's lesson, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such there is no law. What's the last fruit of the Spirit here? Self-control. Self-control, which means what? What does it mean in light of certain religious experiences that claim when the Spirit of God is present, people lose self-control and flop around on the floor like a fish? I would suggest this is a evidence that there are, there's a false spirits in the world. Because when the Spirit of God comes, there's self-governance. Self-control is restored, not out of control. When there's peace. When there's peace. 
What does it mean for those who pray? Lord, I've messed up so much. I'm tired of being in control. Lord, I surrender to you. You take control. You ever heard people pray like this? What does it mean? If the last fruit of the Spirit is self-control, what does it mean for those who are begging God to take control? Will God ever take control of your choices? Why not? You'd be a robot. You'd be a puppet. Can robots and puppets love? No. God is love. He will not take your power of choice. So those types of prayers need to be modified. Lord, give me wisdom as you promised. You promised in your word. Give me wisdom to know the right. Help me understand your designs, your laws, your purposes, your methods, your goals. Help me understand where you're leading. Lord, I choose. Not my will be done, but thy will be done. Show me what your will is in this and I'll choose it. If you pray those kind of prayers, you're going to have your mind opened. If your heart is interested in really doing that, your mind will be open. You will see clarity. You can also say, Lord, I'm not sure what the best outcome in this circumstance is. From my perspective, it looks like I I ought to take this job over here, um, but maybe that's not where you have me, and I haven't had a clear word from you not to take it. So, Lord, if it's not your will, I go there, then shut that down and let that opportunity go away. The Lord answers prayers like that too. I've had prayers like that answered in my life. And I can look back on how my career path has gone certain ways, and I can see clear places where I prayed like that, and the Lord shut down certain avenues that were apparently open, but then they shut, and I went a different way, and it was much better. What does it mean for those who teach that God is in control of everything that happens on planet Earth? So therefore, God brought Harvey to Houston, because God's in control. This is where it really comes back. Do you see God governing his universe like a human dictator governs a human government with imposed laws that he enforces and he makes it happen his way? Or do you see God governing in harmony with his design laws? And one of his design laws is the law of liberty. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And thus he governs in, uh, under the umbrella of his principles of truth, love, and freedom. And I, and I ask all the parents in this room, if you actually had nanochip technology you could inject into your kids that lodge in their brain and form a network that you could then go to your computer and you could actually program them to do everything you want them to do. And you've had kids that have struggled with maybe some addiction issues or, or some other types of problems and they haven't been living healthy. If you could take that and now they will only do what you program. They won't do anything until you program them. And you can program them to go to school. You can program them to go to bed at 10 o'clock. You can program them to come, Mommy, Daddy, I love you three times a day. And they do. Mommy, I love you. Okay, would you do this to your kids? Even kids who are struggling? You wouldn't do it. Why wouldn't you do it? Because you destroy their individuality. You destroy their capacity for love. God has power to do these things, but it goes against his nature. And it violates his design laws. It would destroy love. He won't do it. He's in control through the capacities of how he, his laws work in reality. And thus, at the end of time, we are taught that we are... Where is the dwelling place for the Holy Spirit on earth? Our hearts. We are the temple of the Spirit of God. So what is going to happen on earth when billions of hearts close to the Holy Spirit? What happens to the Spirit's presence on earth when that happens? It's slowly being removed because God wants his spirit taken from the earth or because he respects the freedom of his beings to not let the spirit into their hearts. And as the spirit is removed from the earth, who gets more power on the earth? 
Satan is a roaring lion seeking who may devour. And he gets more power and more calamities and more things happen. Not because God is inflicting, but because God's protective hand is withdrawing based on our choice to close him out. And more and more tragedies and things are going to happen in this world. You're going to see more coming. And that's where God is calling for his witnesses at the end of time to stand up and give a message so that people can see God is not the source of this. This is an, uh, again, design law, life becomes predictable. You can predict this will happen when you deviate from God's design laws. Just like the laws of health. You can predict what's going to happen to someone's health when they do certain unhealthy behaviors. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are our creator God who's constructed reality to work in harmony with your principles, your character, truth, presented in love, leaving people free. We want to live by the Spirit, Lord. We want to live those principles, which means we have to come to know the truth. So we ask the Spirit of truth to enlighten our minds, help us understand, comprehend, internalize, and apply your methods to our lives so that we can be lights, so that we can let the light shine forth, the light of your kingdom of love, that others can see, and we can be sources of truth and light and love in this world to remove the barrier of misunderstanding that so many have who believe in you but live in fear of you. And thus they're running from you rather than running to you. We pray your spirit will be poured out now, that the message of your true character will go forward and you will come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.